Welcome back to Cana Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Today, we have two very impressive ladies joining us. First is an investor, entrepreneur, and advisor to numerous cannabis and hemp businesses. She has expertise in brand development, operational growth, and investment strategy. She currently serves as president of T3 Ventures and on the board of directors at Akerna Series Acquisition Corp and Superette. She also serves on the advisory board on the Last Prisoner Project and is dedicated to developing female and minority leadership in the industry. Please welcome Tahira Ramatula. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. And our next guest is also an entrepreneur with over 20 years experience in business execution, management, and strategic business development. She has worked in finance, research and analysis, intelligence collection and reporting, and as a senior strategic consultant in multiple industries across both commercial and government sectors in the U.S. and abroad. She has launched and operated four successful data-driven businesses and currently serves as our CEO and founder of New Frontier Data. Please welcome Gianna DeCarcer. Hi. Welcome back. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get started, Tahira, can you give our listeners a quick overview of T3 Ventures for those who may not be familiar with your company? Sure. So uh, T3 is a business I started in 2016, and it really was in response to getting a lot of requests and feedback for help around getting brands to market. So I had just come out of uh, Privateer Holdings, had built and launched a brand called Marley Natural, and it was still quite early for brands figuring out how to get to market. What does it mean to be a brand in the cannabis industry? Um, had some really interesting conversations and just thought, you know, I should I should really take advantage of this opportunity. And having been someone, maybe at the time, one of the few people who launched a brand into market, um, which is all kinds of complicated, it's still complicated, but less so than it was then, but maybe in different ways. Um, and then that's really just evolved. I've, I've had, I've been involved in a variety of uh, parts of the industry and with different companies, but I've always had T3 kind of running in the background, uh, more of strategic, uh, you know, advisory work and some investing as well. Awesome. Yeah, I know. What could be difficult about an industry that's constantly changing the rules and yeah, <laughs> all the regulations? Yeah, have them and then decided they had them. You know, who knows? Yeah, I know. It's a, I mean, it's a full-time job just keeping up with what's going on. All right. Well, we have a lot to cover, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, last week, a Marijuana Business Daily reported top executives from marijuana MSOs detailed their favorite state cannabis markets and their plans going forward. So 2020 started out slowly, but was expected to be an opportunity for the market to right itself. Then the pandemic hit, it wreaked havoc on global economies. And as we've seen, cannabis has been, uh, the industry has been relatively spared, a lot of it due to being deemed essential business during the lockdown. And now many MSOs are looking ahead and using the industry's relative stability as an opportunity to expand into new markets. Uh, Tahira, I'll start with you. Um, How do you view the cannabis market right now in terms of growth opportunity and opportunities for investors? Well, I think that's what you're saying about um, writing the, the industry, I think that's still a massive opportunity. I don't think that has changed. In fact, if anything, cannabis being deemed an essential business, it has encouraged that even further. We still have to do that. We still have a long way to go. I'm sure we've all seen different news stories coming out You know, along the way. They started last year. We are still seeing bad activity, bad actors, things that have been going on under the surface that we need to correct. And so I think that that's still very much on the forefront for operators, for investors, you know, and everybody who's looking at the industry. Um, I do think that 
you know, there's still a lot of growth. Like I think we're still pretty early in cannabis when you think about the trajectory of in how industries form and how they become much more mainstream and, and sustainable. Um, I mean, I've been in this space since 2014 and it feels like we've lived the entire cycle once already, which I'm very uncomfortable with. The fact that we had so many public companies and this boom coming, I mean, it felt very uncomfortable to me. And then we've seen what happens and it's kind of been a mix of it's gone up, it's gone down. I think we're really starting to see the businesses that have been structured appropriately, have really managed their cash flow. They're, they're slowly rising over time and uh, being able to maintain consistency. And, and for public companies, it's, it shows in their reporting results. For private companies, it shows in how they're able to uh, continue growing within the, you know, within the industry, but also what they communicate to their investors, able to go out and get more funding. Um, so I think there's still a long way to go, which, which is good. Uh, I think a lot of companies will go out of business, which is a necessary part of growth of an industry that's happened very quickly uh, and still probably, you know, got a little bit over its skis. Got it. Now, Giada, for someone that's also been in the industry almost as long, would you agree with that? I have to say I agree with Tahira. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's only because it's you. <laughs> um, no, but it's true. So I, I entered about the same time in 2014, and it's funny, people talk about investor 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. I mean, obviously, this pandemic and, and, you know, the ensuing sort of recession, economic recession environment that we're in um, has impacted. But candidly, in terms of where, you know, the investment uh, community, the investment realms health for the cannabis industry, if anything else, there's been a little bit of a shift or evolution in, in who the investor is and when they're, where they come from and where they're investing. But the investment is coming. And I'll give some a little bit of an example. What we saw uh, the past three years, let's call it like 2017, 2018, 2019, most of what fueled, especially on the startup and seed investment in the United States, may have been Canadian capital. There was a lot of Canadian capital that came in also emerging from the relatively inflated public market, as we now know, that flowed into the U.S. So a lot of the investors were Canadians or North American. Post uh, sort of end of last year, when we began to see sort of this, let's call it adjustment of the public market in Canada, we began to see sort of that that consequence sort of slow down and, you know, the investment all of a sudden seemed that it dried out. But what really occurred is that that it might have dried out temporarily from that source, but other sources come into play. European investors are much more active right now. Also, investors that are not necessarily traditionally cannabis investors are coming into the space. Um, one thing that we know from investments in a recession type uh, economic environment is that investors are looking to hedge their portfolios with industries that they deem, you know, the quote unquote recession proof. The cannabis industry already based on just early 2020 data shows that cannabis consumers are continuing to consume, if not d- doubling their consumption. Now, do we know that that's going to be um, that that level of increase in consumption is going to maintain? Maybe not. But nonetheless, they're consuming and they're very active. That flows through. Investors are looking for those industries that continue to have revenue being generated to hedge their portfolios. So again, I think that we're we're in a transition. I think that investors, like Tahira said, will have an opportunity to also get some cheaper investments, like the the just because of the consolidation that we're seeing in the industry and the fact that indeed a lot of companies unfortunately will not survive. But that transition means that those that do survive are companies with, with, a, with a solid infrastructure, with the ability to scale, with good management and leadership 
and sort of the, the financial savviness to overcome this, making it even more interesting for an investor to focus on those companies. Got it. Well, as far as talking about the potential growth in this in the industry, Takira, do you see any particular verticals that are most optimistic? Yeah, I think that um, I've been particularly interested in the evolution of form factors, particularly as it you know relates to more biotechnology coming into the space and. Um, also, just in the way in delivery formats, I think that there's this real application of science that we maybe haven't seen as much of in the past because one, it wasn't as accessible to actually do research in the the formats that we need to, um, and two, there wasn't as much of an interest because there was this kind of you know overarching feeling that there there's flower, and then came vape, and then realizing that a lot of newer consumers or even older consumers who are now re-entering the market want different formats for different you know, times of day or for different needs. And so I think that area is really interesting and there is a very long way to go. I mean, just like we think about food and beverage, you know, traditional consumer packaged goods, when there are continuous evolutions, I, cannabis falls along that same spectrum. I think technology continues to be a really interesting part of the industry. I mean, the reality is, is that the way that it powers every other industry, it needs to power the cannabis industry. And you're seeing a lot of growth there. I mean, you know, touching on just elements of delivery, how much that has exploded during this coronavirus period, but it was in the works for a long time. But now the fact that that's allowed people to be more consistently active in the market, data continues to be a very large element. The reality is we've only been looking at data in a much more intelligent way for two years, maybe three years, because that's the only information we had. Before that, there were no data sets really available. And you know, two to three years of data is not that much data when you think of all the other industries that operate off of decades of trends and, you know, evolutions and products um, and different things like that. So I think that those categories will continue to be very interesting. They're all at different stages. Like I think formats are still pretty early. Biotech is still pretty early. Tech has evolved. And I think that that's in like its third iteration now where you have older technology that maybe started, you know, a lot earlier than other companies, but it, it doesn't necessarily fit the industry as well anymore because there's been so much change when, it, when you think about regulation and um, compliance and the needs for overlaying all of that in different markets. Um, so I continue to be pretty active at looking in, in deals in that space. And I still think consumer brands will continue to play a very active part. I think it's very noisy right now. And because of the fragmentation of the market, particularly as you look in the U.S., it's difficult to say, oh, this is going to be the... $2 billion, $3 billion, $5 billion brand in like 10 years. Uh, I think there'll be some consolidation there, but continuing to watch those trends, what people are migrating to and seeing what companies are setting themselves up to really be able to scale when the time is right. Wow. Now, Giada, any other verticals on top of what she mentioned? I'm just going to say Dito, and I agree with you. <laughs> Let's hear just move on. Um, but I do. Um, there's one that we've been talking about for, for you know, for a hot minute, as they say. I mean, extraction and processing, right? We're, we, in fact, we're releasing this week our, our, um, a report on the U.S. hemp market that dives into the cannabinoids uh, in the U.S. as, as part of a new uh, three-part webinar series that we're launching next week. And one of the big, the big findings there is that a third of you Americans uh, are likely to purchase a CBD product in the next six months. That's 180 million people. We also know that right now there are some challenges with extraction and processing. There's just a shortage of it. 
plan, we also know that extraction and processing technology is capital intensive. So there hasn't been as much movement within it. Um, of course, then the question is, what well, is it profitable if it's so capital intensive? I have not done the full study. Someone like the hero probably is <laughs> and has. Um, but certainly it is, an, it is a gap that needs to be filled at some point, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well, and potentially soon in Latin America. The numbers show that consumption of CBD products has gone up across North America and Europe. We also know that food and beverage and health and beauty, again, primarily in Europe, but also in North America, are looking to enter the space with some kind of CBD infused something, with shampoo, hand cream, you name it. And so all of those things call for that need for more extraction and processing. So that could be also an area that I would highlight. Nice. I feel like on another podcast, we were talking about consumption and the, and the demand has changed now just in this post-COVID world where, you know, people that were smoking before maybe not want to have the flower and smoke for the issue with the lungs and the COVID-19. Plus, maybe they're at home with their kids and they don't want to smoke. They want to have an edible. You know, there's just all these different things that are factoring. It's going to be interesting to see if those kind of continue on and these trends can continue. So it'll be interesting. Well, Tahira, as far as um, talking about markets, what are the top two or three markets that you're really excited about to see over the course of the next year? I think uh, the Midwest is going to continue to be very interesting. I mean, we've already seen so much growth in a state like Illinois. Uh, yeah. Michigan continues to be really interesting. And I think that that's just the beginning of it. As you see states like Ohio and Pennsylvania continue to emerge. Um, and then that kind of bleeds in also to the East Coast. Like we're, we're just the beginning of the East Coast having active markets. Um, it's been almost entirely medical and, and very restrictive. And obviously you have a state like Massachusetts that's been recreational, but uh, in a very restrictive way as well. And so as those uh, markets develop over time and continue to open up, and they will, uh, it's just a matter of time. You, know, you think of a state like New Jersey, obviously with its proximity to New York, but just a large active population. Uh, I think those regions are going to be really, really interesting. I know it's most of it's been obviously concentrated on the West Coast, but those same types of demographics exist everywhere and are looking for alternative solutions to opioids and over-the-counter medications. And in fact, I would argue that you know, regions like the Midwest need it more because they haven't had access. And when you look at where the opioid epidemic has really hit the hardest, it's in a lot of those communities that have had um, jobs taken away from manufacturing and are not only looking for alternative health remedies, but are looking for jobs. And, and bringing in cannabis to those regions is going to really help on the jobs front. And I think that that's one element that's even more exciting for me is like, let's get jobs back in. Let's create more opportunities for a larger, larger population, not just a concentrated group on the coast, because that's where we really need a lot of change. Yeah. This article, what was interesting, too, is that, um, you know, they went over a couple of top people, these really large companies and saying, what are your top, you know, top two, three markets? And it wasn't the same for each one. Some people said, you know, Illinois and Massachusetts. Other people said New Jersey, um, New York, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. Other people said Connecticut, Maine. It's so diverse on where people are looking and getting excited about. And someone was saying Pennsylvania and Arizona. So it's not, it doesn't seem like everybody's kind of rushing to the same, like everybody wants California or everybody wants, you know, Illinois because it's a booming market. It seems like there's so many different pockets that are opening up and people are really getting excited about it. There are a lot of states that aren't even that far along yet. And there are that have like a much more controlled environment that will open up over time. When you look at a state like Oklahoma, 
we haven't even really touched Texas yet and <laughs> that all of these places will grow over time. So I think, um, you know, everybody has their own strategy and their own reason for going into different locations. You'll see a lot of overlap. I mean, I hear a lot of people talk about Illinois and Michigan, um, but I think that's great, right? There are different, there are different strategies that impact different places and that's what we need. We don't need everybody doing the same thing. Exactly. Giada, what do you think your top two or three markets that you're most excited about? Um, all I'm going to do is quantify everything that Tahira said, because that's all I can do. <laughs> no, that's great, because I don't have numbers to add that part. You've been doing your homework, um, but to sort of to, to literally illustrate um, exactly what Tahira just said. So there was a new poll done by Mariana Moment um, recently that showed that 65% of Arizona voters favors legalization of recreational cannabis. That's just new. In New Jersey, Monmouth University poll showed that more than 60% of voters in New Jersey are in favor of legalizing recreational cannabis. In New York, we also, you know, we know that um, Governor Cuomo also already indicated sort of his willingness to legalize recreational cannabis. It's, it's interesting to see sort of this recreational wave taking on. Um, and to Tahira's point, I mean, states are looking for new quick ways to generate revenue. And, and create jobs. And so since coronavirus sort of, I guess, let's say, uh, went, um, you know, full, full force across the U.S., um, the state of Pennsylvania lost about $4 billion in tax revenue. This is as, as of um, May 21st. When you look at a state like, like Illinois with a population that's very similar in size, they instead wreaked more than $10 million a month in taxes and fees since legalized adult use. So, you know, numbers don't lie. This is the type of thing that other states are looking at. And instead of a net-net loss, we're talking about a net-net win. So it's sort of, I don't want to call it a no-brainer because there are social implications that people will, you know, argue about. But in essence, when it comes to truly creating job and generating additional revenue, it kind of is a no-brainer. <laughs> right. Well, moving on to another really interesting uh, article. Real Money reported that cannabis shoppers prefer the in-store experience. The quick return to cannabis dispensaries show that the demise of brick and mortar is a myth. So while curbside pickup and delivery have offered a real convenience to consumers to continue to get cannabis safely during the pandemic, some appear to prefer in-person transactions. So for companies that have been investing in new online fulfillment methods, they may be very disappointed to hear that consumers are heading back to brick and mortars. Uh, to hear, do you believe the spike in online deliveries was like a phenomenon of the moment, or do you see this being the new normal? I honestly, I think it's a mix. Um, and I do believe that there are a lot of people, especially people who are new to the market or re-entering the market from a time where products were very different, that they want that interaction in brick and mortar. They want to talk to someone. They don't know what they want. They don't really know how to differentiate between products. There are so many products. They all kind of say different things and, you know, trying to target different demographics that it's hard to really see through the noise. And I think that that is something that won't change for a while because you have people coming back into the market or becoming new consumers every day. And that's going to continue, I think, for years as there's uh, more comfort around it, more understanding around it. And that initial interaction uh, can be very impactful, you know, and some people just like having that person-to-person -person, uh, interaction. But I do think that as either people who have been consuming in the market for a long time, who know what they like, who don't need to go in and see all the new variety, or if they can see it on a menu online, they can assess whether they want to try it or not. They will continue to utilize tech to 
get their products, not dissimilar from direct-to-consumer, which is so popular, obviously, in all other retail uh, environments. And that's why brick and mortar has been going away. But I think it's a combination. I mean, this is a product that it's great if it shows up if you're at your door, if you know exactly what you want and exactly how to consume it. And it's great to have somebody to talk to if you don't. Um, so I think it'll be a mix. And as we see different markets, newer markets come online, I think we'll see, you know, uh, lines at retail locations that will fade over time. And, and what that timeline is, I don't know. We can let Giada put in stats and real numbers into any of this. But I think that, uh, you know, these are, these are not crazy trends as people are trying to figure out new products. And because cannabis is also continuously evolving, it's like there's no beverage available and all of a sudden there are all of these beverages available. How do you tell the difference? How do you know what is good for you? Uh, you know, if you're someone who has edibles and react very differently than when you consume flour or vape, you know, you want to have that interaction. So um, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll see spikes at certain times uh, and in certain markets, and then those will change over time. You know, an interesting anecdote that I have is that I have a friend here in New York who had been going to a dispensary, and it's only medical in New York right now, had been going to a dispensary to get product. And once he was comfortable with the products that were there, kind of had a better understanding, he only does delivery now because he knows exactly what he, what he wants. He, he's comfortable and understands the different price points and actually switched dispensaries as well to one that's closer to him so he can just get a delivery. So, you know, these trends, I think everybody's a little bit different and to, to just say it's going to be one way or the other is probably the wrong outlook. Well, it will be interesting to see if delivery is like different for different products. You know, I feel like for me, when I go to the grocery store, I can have my all my paper stuff delivered and not have a care in the world. But I need to go and buy my produce in person and pick it up and hold it and touch it. So I wonder if that will be the same for flour. You know, like they want to actually go in and see the flour and not just have it shipped to them. It'll be interesting if there's like a differential between products because an edible is an edible. I mean, you're not going to pick out one from another or maybe, I don't know. I mean, that's just something I've, you know. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, that's a really good point. And also factoring in state policies, like can you actually see the product in the package or not? Some states don't allow it to have that, you know, it's completely opaque. So if you can't see it, what difference does it make if you go right. in or not? And so, you know, all of those things will factor into just human behavior on like, what are you responding to? But yeah, to your point, I still like to go and pick out my own produce, even though everybody gets everything I, delivered. But yeah. For some reason, I still like to go do that. Yeah, no, I'll get everything paper delivered, but that's one thing. Jada, what are your thoughts? Do you think this is going to be a thing of the moment? I, I do again agree with Tahira. I think it's very difficult to say one way or another. But I, I can speak to certain forces and trends that we're seeing. We've been challenged by this nomenclature, lack of standardization around strain nomenclature, which sort of makes it a little bit difficult for that online consumer to really know what they're getting. So if it is a flower product, maybe you do want to go smell it and look at it, et cetera. So that's one challenge. The nomenclature is it makes it makes it a little it may be something that will be more conducive for people wanting to go see it. So packaging and the, the labeling around packaging, also something that we have yet to see true standardization around. That too may be um, sort of further fueling the wanting to go in an in-person store because you kind of feel like you can ask the question if it's not on the label. But that said, again, someone who knows, and I've seen this depending on the market, right, there are some delivery services and, and retailers that basically they, they've done without the branding. They just tell you you have a sativa or hybrid or an indica. You have it in flower and you have an edible and you have it in a cartridge. 
making it sort of, you know, easy breezy to pick. So it's, I think that it's too early to tell, uh, especially now with this pandemic. I think the behavior is going back and forth because, again, today, obviously, the online delivery is very convenient because people don't want to leave their homes. So I would have to, again, agree with Tahira. I think it's a mixed bag, and I think we'll have to see, and, and probably the answer is it depends. Yeah. Well, speaking of just all the new fulfillment methods online, how would you say that um, affects the equation as like an investor coming into the space? Uh, I mean, I think it you know, really kind of goes back to where ultimately do you think the market is going? I mean, I'm someone who is divided. I think retail is going to hold a pretty big stake in the market for the foreseeable future, particularly because of regulation. It's a regulated product. And so just like you go to a pharmacy for your medications, although delivery has picked up, but people still like to go in because they want to talk to the pharmacist. Um, and I think it'll be a mix like that. And so I think brick and mortar holds a lot of power, but I think tech solutions and ease of access are also going to become very prominent in the market. For the most part, we've only seen it on the West Coast in a market like California. That's where they've been allowing it for longer. It hasn't necessarily hit other parts of the country yet in, in such a large way, but that is changing. And the pandemic is encouraging less and less contact. And so for people who are going to continue to operate in that capacity, I mean, it, you know, pandemic is changing people's habits as it should. Uh, and I think that those are going to have an impact on longer term consumer behavior, not just in cannabis, but across the boards on the way that people interact with product, interact with people. Um, so I, I think that it's really understanding more about the markets that you're investing in and, and not necessarily thinking that it's a one size fits all model. And, and that's, you know, generally across cannabis as well. And any vertical that you look in, you know, vertically integrated is very um, impactful in some markets, but having having that in other markets maybe isn't the right path forwards. And, and that's on a global scale as well. So really understanding the markets that you're interested in, the why, I think it's helpful to then align with, is it predominantly tech? Is it going to be brick and mortar? Is it some combination? My feeling is that it's some combination. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, things are starting to open up. We're seeing phase one and phase two, but I mean, the, the people have been talking about this dreaded second wave that's going to happen and we're going to have a whole another shutdown. So at least, you know, these businesses are going to be really well prepared if they do have these different systems in place. Yeah, I think businesses really need to think about how do you manage these different dynamics? And a lot of that comes in delivery or curbside pickup. Um, and Businesses wanted to move in that direction as it was, particularly in cannabis. They wanted to have that ability, but regulation wasn't necessarily caught up to that and moved very quickly or put in temporary measures to allow for that to happen. And I think some of those places that have allowed for that to happen, given the pandemic, will keep it that way because they, they're seeing that. Oh, it yeah. You can't, uh, you can't put that genie back in the bottle <laughs> when you've offered everyone this convenience. Exactly. Yada, what's your, what's your um, take on these fulfillment methods? I mean, you know, this is the challenge that we all, you know, going back to sort of the delivery versus the use. I mean, look at it less from the, the consumer perspective, but from, again, the operator perspective. It's, it, it can be a cost-associated decision, right? I mean, the, the, especially the larger, you know, the MSOs and the, and the licensed producers. I mean, what's going to happen is it's cheaper for them to not have to have all these retail stores and have to pay all that rent. They just have centralized and then delivery. It's, it becomes a math problem. I mean, look at us, right? We had three offices around the world. Now we have one. We got rid of the other two, and I don't foresee opening the other two anytime soon. 
um, because you want to sort of be responsible when it comes to management your cash flow and finance, finances, especially with this uncertainty on a second wave, if the second wave goes and we're already halfway through the year, what is the point of having that retail rent? So I don't know that it's a, an in perpetuity change. I, I think that that's not necessarily the truth, but, you know, look, an economic cycle is what, eight years, maybe half of that. I mean, I think it's going to take a minute for us to all go back to the normal normal instead of this new normal. It's a transition in and then it's a transition out. Yeah. Well, to wrap this up, Tahira, there is a lot of conflicting information about the state of the cannabis market. What advice would you give investors who are looking to enter the space? Do your diligence. I mean, I think that it's no different than any other industry that people are investing in. You know, as we saw last year in, in, in 2018, there was this hype around investing into the market and people were not really looking at the fine print. I mean, look at the fine print, make sure that there is fine print also. Uh, and I think that's that's what really caused a lot of this inflation in the market. There was a lot of excitement, which for those of us who've been in the space for more than a couple of years, we love that there's excitement. On the other side of it, when you don't do proper diligence and really understand uh, everybody's at the table, understanding all the regulation that goes around that, you you yourself will not only get into trouble, but the business is not going to be positioned in a good way. So investors being pushing back in different areas and ensuring that businesses have thought through different scenarios is critical. I think for investors as well, it's like picking your your kind of focal point, what you know well, knowing what you don't know, and deciding is that where you want to, you know, do you want to continue on your investment thesis? Do you want to shift it? But like have a thesis. Otherwise, you're just looking at everything. And there is a lot to look at in this space. I mean, it's the combination of like four different industries in one. And so any, you know, my inbox is filled with so many different types of deals that you just can't look at all the different types in a day. So think about what your thesis is and why, and kind of, you know, put a stake in the ground saying that these are the types of things you're going to look at and then create a really strong understanding around those themes and fill in themes with other people, utilize other people in the space who may have better information. Like I am not a science background person and I have a strong interest in biotech, but it's aligning yourself with those people who have a much better lens on it to, to get a better sense about it. I would not trust myself to just go make an evaluation by myself. So, so know what your strengths and weaknesses are as an investor and then fill in the gaps. Yeah, anything to add to that? I know you have a, a wealth of information as far as dealing with investors. and. Uh, I mean, listen, in any in any market, forget the cannabis industry, any emerging market when investors are going to look in, sort of the things that you want to look at is, for Tahira, something you know, right? If you're going to assess an investment, make sure that it's something that you understand. And I believe that I, I uh, one of my early, early, early mentors, Jeff Hoffman, he's uh, one of the co-founders of Priceline. We, uh, we run a, an incubator together. One of the first things that we said is, if you don't understand the business, you don't have some know-how in it, you better not invest. It's, you know, you just can't because you, you're not going to understand if the performance is good or sort of those nuances of the business. So that is very important. Um, in an emerging market, we're in this type of economic environment. I think that the, the leadership and management and the talent behind the company becomes extremely important, right? Once you... So at this point, companies that are able to raise capital and their investors looking at seriously already probably checked the, the, the boxes in terms of, you know, that financial, that structure, the scalability. So that, and, and hopefully, as Tahira said, the investor has some kind of a thesis, therefore some kind of focus and direction. So then the differentiating factor really becomes that management team and that talent. Um, these are uncertain times, right? You, wanna, you want a diverse team. Let's talk about that. 
You want to make sure that you're not blindsided. So the more diversity you have in the leadership, the better in order to see things that may be unforeseen and fast moving and volatility. Uh, and then strong talent behind, you know, just as, as just the core of the company, because we don't know what's coming. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the people. If you have good people and good leadership with good vision, you know, hopefully that's where you're going to put your money. Awesome. Well, I feel like that was a great place to leave it. So I just wanted to say thank you for joining us here at Canada Week today. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can find these stories and more on New Frontier Data's Cannabis Insights Daily. And keep a lookout for our first hemp series. We are launching June 17th with a report followed by three weekly webinars focusing on cannabinoids. Thank you again to our guests and our listeners. And I'm your host, Heather Wickline. I'll see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.